With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So I'm here with Adam Grant, author of the best-selling book, Give and Take. Adam, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, James? Good, good. I have to I have to make a confession to you. At first, I was a little reluctant, and this is when I first started the podcast. Someone suggested I should have you on, and at first I was a little reluctant because someone told me, you say yes to everything. And at the time, I was writing a book about the power of no. And and someone told me a story that you even stay up till like one in the morning replying to emails because that's how much of a giver you are, and hence the title of the book, Give and Take. And so is it true you stay up till one in the morning responding to emails? Rarely. Okay, so rarely. I'm going to say no to that. Okay, good. But like, let me ask you a question, and then I want to get into the, to the topic of the book. But like, I'm sure initially when you were beginning your career and everything, you were probably responding to every email because you were building out your network. You were, in fact, giving because you're a giver. How do, at what point, where's the line of demarcation where the emails start piling up so much that you stop giving as much as you could? And you address this a little in the book, but I'm just curious about your direct answer. Yeah, I, I think it, it basically, you draw the line when it starts to compromise your ability to achieve your own goals and live by your values. Well, and I guess for me, that was right after Give and Take came out. I had basically only been visible before that to my students and colleagues and some of the organizations I was working with. And, uh, well, let's just say when the New York Times writes that you never say no, it invites just about every taker on the planet to reach out and ask for something. And that, that made it a lot more critical for me to set some boundaries. And then, because uh, this happens to me quite a bit, then did you get kind of um, negative feedback from that? Like everybody said, hey, I wrote to you last week and you never responded. I thought you always responded. Did you get kind of pushback? Well, I, I still respond to everyone, but the depth of the response and the response time has certainly changed. There, there was some pushback. I got a few people saying, hey, you know, here's this guy who writes about giving and he's clearly a taker. And my response to that was, well, I think I was pretty clear actually in the book about saying that givers are not trying to help any person at a personal cost. What they're trying to do is, uh, is have as much impact as they can. And, you know, for me, my priorities are family first, students second, colleagues third, everybody else fourth. And I can't say yes to any request that's going to compromise my ability to be there for my family or to help my students and my colleagues. So, for instance, like let's say someone writes to you and, and says, hey, can you speak at a conference in Bulgaria next week? Um, we'll pay for your plane ticket, but nothing else. Um, what would your response be? My response would be I'm flattered to be invited. Uh, my schedule is already full for the next month and beyond. And uh, I'm not in a position to say yes to this. But if there are other ways that I can help you, such as by recommending speakers who might be interested, let me know. All right. Well, let me. I'm, I'm going to get. I'm going to get back to that one in a second because I have a question about that response. But why don't you? Why don't, I'll leave it to you to describe give and take and the three types of people you describe in give and take. I think it's a very great model for uh, human interactions. I, by the way, I read the book. I loved it. I highly recommend it. Um, and 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 really does give me. It's. I'm sure it gave everybody food for thought. First, they probably wondered if they were givers, takers, and managers, and I'll let you describe what that means. And then if, given that they've identified what category they're in, I'm sure it made them think about the people around them and how they could change and so on. But w what are the three categories of people you describe in, in give and take? All right. So we have uh, the takers who are people who are always trying to get things from others. They don't want to give back unless they have to. Takers are great at shirking and social loafing and signing up for interesting, visible, important projects while leaving the grunt work for everyone else. And somehow they walk away with the lion's share of credit in those situations, which is why I personally love working with takers. On the other end of the spectrum, we have givers who are not volunteers or philanthropists, but just people who enjoy helping others and often do it with no strings attached. So givers are often sharing their knowledge, providing mentoring, making introductions, sometimes showing up early or staying late to support the people around them. And, and just, just to add there, 
you have some incredible examples in the book, but I, I really personally love the example of uh, George Meyer. I love he wrote on The Simpsons. I love The Simpsons. I didn't know this. You said he was involved in several hundred episodes, writing several hundred episodes, but he only took writing credit on twelve of them over over like a decade. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I was fascinated by that too. And you know, I think that that it's reasonable to say, look. You know, that would be a, a career limiting move if you were not part of a successful enterprise. But I think George understood that the most effective way for him to succeed was to make The Simpsons successful. And it was a lot easier to make other people's work better than it was to sort of jockey for credit and position. And and Hollywood's such a cutthroat industry, like people are trying to get their, their name on the credits for everything because often there's money involved too if, you're, if your name is on the credits. But uh, when he wanted to, to quit in 1995, you mentioned how um, the other writers were so upset they basically pulled him back into full writer status. This is one of the surprising advantages of being a giver, that if you're a taker and you're known to be extremely competent, in this case, insanely funny – then people are threatened by you, right? You are somebody who's going to potentially grab their promotion and uh, get in the way of, of their climb to the top. And I think in George's case, what we see, and there's research to back this up, that if you are equally talented, but you're a giver, instead of people seeing you as a threat, they actually see you as a resource or an asset. And so people were just clamoring to get George back on the show because they felt he elevated everybody else's work. I guess to some extent also, if... If he was a champion for others, like, for instance, if he helped somebody write something and then gave them the writing credit, he's like a, a champion for them. You don't want your champions to, to leave because then you, you might be lost in the organization. Yeah, I think I think that's right. So in addition to just directly improving other people's work, he was sort of known by many of the especially the junior people that he was mentoring as an advocate. And if that guy walks out the door, who knows about your future? Right. So so to some extent it's in their it's in other if you're a giver, it's in other people's self-interest to promote to promote you and to keep you around. That's exactly right. Especially by the way, if you are a taker, there's no one you love more than than having givers around because they'll do all your work. Right. That's funny. Um okay, and so then there's 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 the third category. Yeah, this is most of us. So I'll just say that many many people love the idea of being givers. It resonates with core values. We want to feel that we we made a difference. But we also know there are takers out there. So what most people do is they reserve giving for their close relationships, their family, friends, maybe a couple of colleagues. And then in the rest of their professional interactions, they choose this, this play it safe style of matching. So it's basically quid pro quo. I'll do something for you if you do something for me. Um, I sometimes think that the matchers are like people who think that accounting applies to relationships. So every transaction with another human being has credits and debits and they've got a zero out. You know, it's funny. I, I, of course, while I'm reading the book, and I'm sure you got this a lot, it's it, everybody's probably trying to figure out what they are while reading the book. And nobody obviously wants to be a taker. Probably less people want to be a matcher, but they're willing to say, okay, sometimes I'm a matcher. And probably everybody wants to be a giver because, as you describe in the book, chances are the most successful uh, people are, are givers. And we'll, we'll get to that in, in a second. But um, I find for myself... When I'm dealing with takers, particularly takers who pretend to be givers, then I'm definitely a matcher because I want to make sure they don't take too much from me. And then in other cases, you know, for better or for worse, sometimes for worse, I tend to uh, – I, I think I tend to be a giver. But, you know, t t time will tell. Well, I, th I think there are two really interesting things there. The first one is – nobody is just one of these styles. Right. And we all have moments of giving, taking, and matching. For me, your style is just how you treat most of the people most of the time. And, you know, you can think about it, that in terms of what are your default instincts or just by literally adding up all the interactions you have and, and looking at what you are the majority of the time. The, the second thing that's interesting to me is I, I think inflexibility is a bad strategy in any domain, but especially here. The people who give indiscriminately without any concern for what are the people that I'm giving to likely to do in response, um, that, that's dangerous, right? It's a great recipe for burnout or just getting burned by takers. And um, the evidence is pretty strong that when you're dealing with takers, it's, it's pretty wise to be a matcher and say, look, I'm not going to give to you unless you are going to pay it back or pay it forward 
or a minimum, I'm going to protect myself by giving in ways that don't cost me anything. Right. And you give the example of um, Peter Odette, who's a, a financial – he runs like a financial services firm. And uh, he had to um, learn to be more of a matcher with people who were takers. Like he was very much a giver. And and you have a quote. I'm going to try to find it. Um, oh, Peter was a victim of empathy, particularly with his uh, partner who was kind of getting away with everything. Um, and, and I'm questioning that, like, was he a victim of empathy or was he afraid of confrontation? Because I think probably a lot of givers are afraid of confrontation. I think it's, it's probably a mix of both. In this case, you know, Peter had spent about a decade building a financial advising business with this other guy who was very competent, who opened a lot of doors for Peter and you know, then sort of later revealed himself to be a pretty bad faker taker. Uh, who you know, was really all about himself and was actually embezzling funds from the firm. Mm. And, you know, I think I think Peter was definitely concerned about the confrontation because this guy had demonstrated in the past that he was he was willing to cross the lines of what many of us would consider moral or legal. But I think there was also an empathy piece that, you know, Peter had been close to the guy for a decade. Um, they'd spent time with each other's families. You know, they'd, they'd been sort of – they'd developed a personal relationship. And Peter was very worried about what was on the other side of, you know, of actually calling the guy out and said, all right, you know, I, I don't want to ruin his life. I don't want to potentially get him sent to prison. I care about the guy. I know he's a bad person, but I still care about him. And so and you mentioned that, you know, givers in terms of so bringing it down to the listener like uh, or up to the listener, um, you know, givers are on both sides of the success spectrum. So if you look at, you know, who are the most successful, givers, takers, or matchers, it turns out you mentioned that givers are often the least successful and the most successful. Like they sort of divide in half. And what's the dividing factor? Like how do you become a giver who's successful as opposed to a giver who's in the least successful quadrant? Yeah, that, that was a big surprise to me when I looked at engineers, productivity, medical students' grades, and even salespeople's revenue that if you look at the worst performers, there are more givers in, their, in that group than there should be statistically. And then if you look at the best performers, givers were overrepresented there too. Um, and takers and matchers basically clustered in the middle. And if you look at the differences between the failed givers and the successful givers on the extremes, it basically comes down to being thoughtful about who you help, how you help, and when you help. So we, we talked a little bit about the who, right? Successful givers are cautious with takers. Failed givers tend to make the mistake of, of helping takers. Um, the how is, I think, the most interesting part, which is failed givers tend to be generalists. They're willing to help in lots of different ways, and they quickly become jacks of all trades and get turned into doormats, whereas successful givers are much more likely to become specialists and say, look, I've got one or two ways of helping that I enjoy and excel at. I'm going to focus on those and not worry about the other kinds of requests. And that has two advantages. One is that you end up helping in ways that energize you instead of exhaust you. And the second is you get a reputation for having a certain kind of expertise, which means people value and respect your time. And they stop bothering you with miscellaneous requests. They only come to you when they have something where you can make a distinctive contribution. And that allows you to, to basically spread your reputation and usually expand your network in a meaningful way. And then the, the when part, I think, is the most obvious in theory, but the hardest to do in practice which is failed givers are constantly dropping everything to be there for other people. And successful givers recognize or learn at some point along the way that they've got to secure their oxygen masks before assisting others. And that means they've got time blocked out in their calendar to get their own work done where they're not going to pick up the phone or answer an email unless it's an emergency. And they also have separate windows of time dedicated to be there for other people. You know, it's funny you use that uh, that analogy of the oxygen mask because – so in a, in a plane, obviously, when the plane's going down, the oxygen masks come down and, you know, you're told specifically put the oxygen mask on first before you put it on your little baby maybe who's sitting next to you. Like it's an extreme example where you have to protect yourself first even before you save a child because that's the only way you'll be able to save a child. And uh, I, so I wrote this book a few years – or about a year and a half ago, Choose Yourself – where people accused me of, I use that analogy, and people say, "Oh, that's selfish." But you have to, 
if you if you really truly want to help other people, that's what you that's what you have to do. You have to help yourself first. So you're the the either the healthiest or the most knowledgeable or whatever you can do. You improve your own skills so you can share them with others. Yeah, I think there's a caricature of this advice that can certainly make people angry. It reminds me of a, an old George Carlin skit where he says, "So on an airplane, they always tell you to put on your oxygen mask before helping others. I do not need to be told that." And you know, I think I think we we can all stereotype takers as as basically not having any concern for other people. I, I think your point in, in choose yourself is right on target, which is you have to take care of yourself in order to be able to help others. And the way that I break this down is to say that you know, in a nutshell, the differences between the failed and successful givers that we've been talking about come down to all givers have high concern for others. That's just part of the definition of, of being a giver. But they vary in whether they also care about their own interests. And ironically, the givers who care a lot about others but don't care for themselves end up burning out faster and they give less than the givers who are able to balance concern for others with protecting their own interests. And you know, I think that, that most of the givers who suffer are people who basically have not learned to make sure that they prioritize their own needs, at least on par with other people's needs. So what, what, what's an example of, uh, of a giver that you know of that's uh, greatly succeeded? And you, you give many in the book, but I'm just curious. I'm, I just want to talk about one. Well, one of my favorites who's not in the book actually is, is Kat Cole. Uh, the short, short story on Kat is she started out living a version of the American dream where after being raised by a single mother who worked three jobs to support her family, Kat ended up carrying two jobs all through high school. Uh, just to be able to support her family and also save up money for college. And she became the first person in her family to make it to college. But she was so busy helping others working in a restaurant that she ended up failing all her classes and dropping out of school. And if the story ended there, it would be pretty sad. But what's amazing is at 19 years old, Kat gets approached by a manager who says, we're thinking of opening a restaurant overseas and we're wondering if you're interested in the job. And Kat says, I'm not qualified. She has less experience and less education than any other candidate for the job. But she ends up getting it because Kat is such a giver that she's the only person who has worked every single job in her restaurant. So, you know, one day a chef quits and she's the first person to run back into the kitchen and start cooking so that every guest has a meal. And a manager doesn't show up one day. She's the person who steps up to organize the schedule so that everybody has their shift and the restaurant can maintain smooth operations. And Kat will tell you it was wildly inefficient for her to be cooking and to be organizing schedules in the short run, and she didn't get anything from it. But in the long run, it actually built up a a knowledge and skill advantage that the time she spent solving other people's problems actually enhanced her ability to solve her own problems and, in fact, made her better equipped to solve the organization's problems. So she goes to Australia, she opens a restaurant there, does the same thing in Latin America, Southeast Asia, Africa, comes back to the U.S., heads up corporate training, and her career just skyrockets. In her early 30s, she's named the president of a brand that a few years later under her leadership is now worth over a billion dollars. You might have heard of it. It's called Cinnabon. Oh, wow. Okay. So making, um, making people unhealthy in airports everywhere. <laughs> but It's uh, true. <laughs> But Although still Kat will tell you place. that uh, we're, we're all going to have a gooey treat once in a while. Yes. Yeah, so- and uh, she, she'd rather be behind doing that in such a way that helps to grow people's careers and enhance their skills than not. Well, one thing I find interesting there is, um, and, and I don't know for sure you could tell me, my guess is she also didn't complain about the extra work. Because I think giving involves, or being a giver probably involves not complaining about the extra work you're doing. Yeah, I think, I think that's right on target. So when I, when I asked Kat, you know, to looking back, how does she explain her success? She says, look, you know, most of the helping that I did was be, because I really cared about the people that I was helping or I saw a problem and I was able to fix it. And I didn't ask for any credit for it. I wasn't going out of my way to make sure that everybody appreciated my extraordinary generosity. Right. What I was doing was I was just trying to help. And that's the kind of person that I wanted to be. And you know, I think that, that it, is, it is risky in the short run. right? We know from uh, research by Madeline Heilman and her colleagues, which uh, was beautifully covered in Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, that women often, when they help, are less likely to get credit for it because we just expect it of them. 
I do think, though, that in the long run, if you help in ways that are valuable, that you know, typically there are people, and they're usually matchers, who believe that givers ought to get rewarded for their generosity. And so you know, sometimes there, there will be a chance to get recognized eventually, and that's certainly what happened to Kat. Well, you know, I'm curious, how did you get into this topic? So it seems like you went um, – you know, you've had a, a bunch of different interests, like you're uh, a major diver, like you were a, a junior Olympic contestant for diving. You're an, uh, an amateur magician. And then obviously you're, you're a great professor. You're the youngest tenured professor at, at Wharton. How did you get into a, such a topic that, that resonates so deeply with so many people? Well, I think it's, it's funny, actually, but the the driving interest for me was was one actually being a diver i uh i, I you spend in, in a diving practice you spend a lot of time standing in line talking to other people and especially when you're standing in line you're watching you know your teammates and some of your competitors do their dives and i i just i was fascinated by diving i thought the physics of it were really interesting but i i also just really appreciated like the aesthetics of being able to hurl yourself in the air, somersault two times, twist around a time, and then dive into the water and have perfect control and precision, precision over that to, to land without a splash. And I just, I really enjoyed trying to make people better at it. And I think the, the pivotal moment for me was I was at a diving camp one summer. I think it was the, the summer between my junior and senior years of high school. And I started giving some pointers to a guy who was also at camp who I would be competing with the following year. And I had a, a diving coach pull me aside and say, stop doing that because, you know, diving is a zero-sum sport and if you make this guy better, you're not going to do as well. Um, and sure enough, he ended up beating me at the state championships by a few points. <laughs> and I, and did, you feel, did you feel like horrible about that? Like, why did I help that guy? In, in the short term, in the moment, you know, I'd, I'd worked for four years to, you know, to try to do as well as I could in my senior year of state championships and... Yeah, there was about a week where I was pretty depressed. But, you know, I felt like I was not going to sacrifice my values and stop helping this guy achieve his goals just because they sort of interfered with my own goals. And I think the nice thing about this is like the sport was was a hobby, right? It wasn't it wasn't life. And I quickly learned after diving that most of the world was not zero sum and that especially in the business world, there are lots of ways that we can help others that cost us very little. And in fact, many of the acts of helping that we do turn out to benefit us in ways that we would never expect. And I started to, to talk to my students about that, and they thought I was out of my mind. And I decided that if I couldn't convince them with, uh, with a, a couple of stories and a few studies, that maybe there was a book to be written. Yeah, because I think most people think the business world is zero-sum. And I probably have that conversation with people at least once a day uh, where they think that if you get something, somebody else loses something. And that's just incredibly incorrect because the nature of business is to create something the world has never seen. You know, you're solving a, a unique problem that no one's ever solved before. And then you share it with people for a sum. You're like there's a bartering that happens. But you've, but now the world is a better place because of it. Yeah, it's funny though because people who see the world as zero sum end up actually creating a self-fulfilling prophecy and they actually live in a world that does become sort of zero sum. So imagine, right, you start out with these beliefs that, you know, I if I want to win, other people have to lose. That means everybody in your midst is a potential taker who's out to get something from you and you are constantly operating in a, a defensive sort of self-protective mode. Over time, that means you don't give a lot you also don't trust other people to give to you. And you only end up interacting with people who either already are takers or who think that you're a taker and are protecting themselves by being matchers, which means they've got to take from you. And you know, it's really hard then to, to develop a different way of seeing the world. And uh, you know, it's funny because I think there's, there's, there's also a spiritual aspect to a book called Give and Take because I think giving obviously goes beyond – uh, the business world, and I think, I think takers, uh, and there's nothing wrong with takers. I think it's a way that that they view the business world, and there's, and maybe it has to do with the way they grew up, or the way the the people that were around them as they were growing up, or whatever. Who knows? But I think giving the the reason why it's not so zero sum is because 
you don't just give in the business world. You give in all aspects of your life when you're when you're a giver. And I think people don't realize that there's there. It turns out there is no pie. Like there doesn't have to be a definition of success where success is okay. I have the most money now because I took the most money. You know, you, you give because you want to help. Yeah, that that really resonates for me. And there's so many instances that I've encountered, especially since writing the book, of of people coming out of the woodwork and saying. You know, I, I helped somebody 10 years ago, never even gave it a second thought. It was just, you know, this person needed help and it was going to benefit them more than it cost me. And I said, sure. And, you know, I made an introduction. I gave a little bit of advice. I shared some expertise. And then, you know, this person came back around and, and fundamentally changed my life, not through helping me in return. That would be matching. But just through, you know, kind of spreading information about the good deed that I had done and, you know, that, that led me to develop a reputation in this particular world that otherwise wouldn't have known me. And, and you know, kind of things were completely different as a result. And th- those stories are a dime a dozen. And, you know, we, we have a lot of data to back them up. But I think that it's worth highlighting that, that matchers are really part of the key to this equation. So a lot of people, they, they decide, you know what, I'd like to be more of a giver. Um, you know, I've, I've been operating from fear too long or... You know, I, I just feel like I should be contributing more to the people around me. So I'm only going to surround myself with givers. And that's a huge mistake because matchers are actually the people who are most motivated to protect you against takers. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing a, a matcher hates more than seeing your taker act selfishly and get away with it because that just violates the rules of justice. So when matchers meet takers, they feel like it's time to step up and become the karma police. Um, and the way you would know, I think, James, if, if you're really a matcher is – when you meet a taker, do you just feel like it's your mission in life to punish the hell out of that person and, and see justice served? And I think we all need a couple of matchers around us to protect us. It's funny because when I meet a taker, my instinct is to uh, remove myself from the conversation. So like, I just avoid takers, which may be good, may be bad. I don't know. I just don't like dealing with them. Yeah, I think that that's probably what most people learn to do, right? There, there are only so many people I can interact with in a day. My time is, is scarce and valuable. So I'm just not going to waste it with people who are only operating to extract value. I mean, um, you, it, you look at like, for instance, look at like any great artistic movement or literary movement or whatever. Like, let's take the, the beats from the 50s. So you had Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs, and a few others. Those guys were very much in a weird way you wouldn't think of them this way but in a weird way they're all givers like they all helped each other get each other's books published they all edited each other's books um so this was a group of just givers it seems i mean we don't really know the full stories but uh it seems like then when you look at the artistic movements like the impressionists uh, and how they helped each other uh it seems like a lot of these artistic movements came out of groups of givers deciding they were going to help themselves against the people who were trying to exclude them. That's fascinating. It's not, it's not a place that I'd thought about these dynamics before, but you know, it, it, it strikes me that, that the author community is the same way, right? When I, I'm sure you had this experience as well. When I was starting out, you know, I, I reached out to a number of people that I hardly knew and some people that I didn't know at all who were complete strangers and said, look, I, I wrote this book. You know, I think that um, the message is consistent with, with your values. And I know that you have an audience of readers who might be interested in this. Is there a, a chance that you might be willing to look at it? And I, at first, felt like a huge taker, you know, asking people that I didn't even know to consider looking at and recommending my book. What I quickly learned was that most successful authors, there are exceptions, of course, um, you know, had, had been helped by somebody in that very way in the past and were motivated to pay it forward. And, you know, also it was, you know, it was sort of in service of spreading ideas that, that I think could make the world a better place. And I'm always excited to endorse a book that I think could help people who are interested in reading it. So I think that's, that's another example that sort of fits by the same philosophy. Has, has that been your experience too? Uh, absolutely. And particularly, like, I, I've been published both by major publishers and I've self-published and I always help people, um, particularly in the in the area of self publishing, where I think publishing is moving. I think I think I think traditional publishing is a little bit more zero sum because the big publishing houses can only publish so many books. But self publishing, if you introduce people to the right editors, the right designers, the right methodologies of self publishing, um, that's a great way to help people. And it really is uh, uh, not zero sum. Then, like the the pie is enormous. 
So, but but let me ask you a question. You you had a hard time asking, and I think that is the flip side of giving. Um, and I, I think asking is an incredibly difficult thing to do because you do feel like a, a taker. You feel like there's nothing really you can offer back, and you're asking them to take time or energy or whatever. Like, how do you overcome this fear of asking? Yeah. So I would I would say I learned a couple of things in the process. The first one is there's a huge difference between taking and receiving. Right? Taking is using somebody else solely for personal gain, whereas receiving is is saying, look, I'm you know I'm willing to accept your contribution, and if I can, I will pay it back and or pay it forward. And you know I think that that actually successful givers are good receivers, right? They're they're willing to ask, and usually they're when they ask. They motivate themselves by asking on behalf of other people, or at least asking for something that benefits other people in addition to them. And that was what really made it easier for me to start asking. Was you know the more I thought about it, first of all, I didn't want to let down my publisher and my agent and you know this group of people who are behind the book who had made a huge investment in me. And you know I, I felt like I had a responsibility to to get the the book out there. But more importantly, you know, I, I spent a lot of time doing this research. I had a lot of students who were involved in it. You know, I interviewed lots of people and spent hundreds of hours asking them to share their stories. And I, I felt like I had a real commitment to them also to, to get these ideas out there. And you know, one, once I felt like this is a message that is going to be useful and valuable to other people, you know, in part because it will help some givers maybe climb from the, the bottom to the top – and in part because it might motivate some takers and matchers to, you know, to do a few more five-minute favors or to be a little bit more generous. Um, that made it a lot easier for me to ask because I felt like I wasn't asking for me. Right? I, I care about these ideas. I, I believe that they've enriched my life in a lot of ways. And I've had a lot of students and colleagues and, and friends sort of have the same experience. And so then, then it feels like I'm, I'm really just sort of giving other people an opportunity to give as opposed to taking from them. I think that's an important insight that um, when you receive, it's actually you're helping other people be givers, and they want to. So if they want to give, you're actually making them feel better by asking. And I think most people don't realize that they they're just too afraid to ask. I, I have to admit, I'm very afraid to ask all the time, and it's something that I I deal with and have to have to get over. But I think I think what what you do, James, from from watching you largely on social media is you are really thoughtful about your asks. And you know, I don't think it's true that we all just want to give in any way, shape, or form. Right? So like you're not going around and asking people to help you move from one house to another. <laughs> I think right. you're, you're, you, when you ask, it's really well aligned with what people enjoy giving and where they think they can add value. And you know, I think I think that's the mistake that a lot of people make. So, you know, when when people reach out, they will frequently say you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what career I should go into, you know, can you give me some advice? And, you know, I, I don't feel like that's an area that I'm good at being helpful. Yes, I'm an organizational psychologist. I spend a lot of time giving people career advice. But those people are my students that I've spent at least a semester getting to know. And, you know, for a complete stranger to expect that I'm going to know how they should uh, think about this next career dilemma uh, is, I mean, that's that's just really low probability that I can be helpful there. And so I think doing some, some research and homework on the person and figuring out what do they enjoy giving? What can they give that nobody else is really suited to contribute? That's the kind of ask where, where I'm likely to say, this is exciting. I feel like I can help in a meaningful way here. You know, one, one question that I get a lot is, so, so in my book, uh, I recommend people, um, I, I describe a story where my career um, was kickstarted in some sense by writing down 10 ideas for other people to act on without giving me, you know, I, I wanted to take myself from the middle. So, for instance, I wrote to a writer and I said, here's 10 ideas of articles you can write. And I said, I don't want to write them. And he wrote back to me and said, why don't you, we'll hire you to write these stories. These story ideas are great. We'll hire you to write these stories. So that began kind of my career writing. This was like 12 years ago or 13 years ago. And, um, People then, so I describe a bunch of these stories, and people write to me and ask, "Hey, I want to give these ideas to people, but I'm afraid they'll steal them. And what should I do about that?" And I, I tell them, "You're not really giving the ideas if you're afraid they're going to steal them. Like you, you have to be willing to let your ideas be stolen. And this has happened to me quite a bit. My ideas have been stolen quite a bit, um, but it's no big deal because if you're good at giving, you, it's sort of a skill you have to develop. You know, being good at giving." 
good idea. So you know what you're good at giving at in that in the example you just described. And so that's what you focus on giving at. So so I tell people you can't really worry about uh, your ideas being stolen. But what, what would you tell those people? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I would add that if you're constantly living in fear that other people are going to steal your ideas, you probably don't have that many ideas. Hmm. <laughs> right? Like the, the, That's probably true. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, fundamentally, uh, ideas flourish when people share them. And there's there's a study that I covered in, in Give and Take, uh, led by uh, Matej Cern, which showed that if you go out of your way to hide knowledge from other people, you're, you actually become less creative. And part of that is because most people are matchers. And if you don't share ideas with them, they don't share ideas back with you. And you end up in this sort of reciprocal distrust loop where your creativity hinges on other people broadening your perspective and exposing you to divergent views. If you're not in the habit of sharing ideas, that just doesn't happen. But I also think it, you know, it's, it's the case that you know, frequently when you share your ideas with other people, they make them better. And, you know, if you're hiding them and, and trying to develop them, you know, sort of uh, isolated from other people, um, chances are you're going to miss out on some corner arguments. You're not going to develop them in a way or a language that makes them as, as resonant for other people as they could be. So I think that, that people should overcome these fears. There, there is such a thing as oversharing or sharing an idea too soon, of course, or with the wrong audience. But if you've got a group of people who you know have a history or reputation of not being takers, I think it's entirely fine to start opening up with some of your ideas. Um, you know, in in a couple of your chapters, in in the actions chapter at the end, and in an earlier chapter where you talk about the, so so. Uh, actually, before I ask this, describe the difference between strong ties and weak ties, because I think this is uh, related to the concept of of give, using giving to improve your networking abilities. So, what's a strong tie and what's a weak tie? Yeah, strong ties are, are basically the people we know well and trust. Weak ties are more like acquaintances. So like someone who's like a, a, like a Facebook friend, but you don't really know them that well, as opposed to like a family member. Yeah, that would be on the extremes for sure. So, so um, and it turns out, according to your research, that weak ties actually help people more than strong ties do in a weird way. Yeah, the, the classic study uh, at Stanford by Mark Granovetter showed that people were 58% more likely to get a job through their weak ties than their strong ties. And when I first read about that, I was like, well, wh- who are these strong ties? Right? Your friends can't help you get a job, but your acquaintances do. And a lot of people think that's because you just have more weak ties than strong ties, so your odds are better. And that, that may be part of the story, but more importantly, your strong ties tend to carry redundant knowledge. So the people you know really well, your closest friends and colleagues – they know a lot of the same people and the same stuff that you do. And by contrast, your weak ties, they travel in different circles, they meet different people, they learn different things. So it's much more likely that they, they can open up new opportunities that you weren't aware of. So when you're searching for a job, your friends give you basically a bunch of leads you already figured out, whereas your acquaintances are able to, uh, to really give you access to new insights. And I think we, we probably, many of us, under underappreciate the importance of those weak ties, but it's extremely hard to reach out to them. You know, it, it's interesting. So an, another way to explain that is let's say you, you rank a tie from zero to 100. So your strong ties are like between 90 and 100 and your weak ties are somewhere between zero and 25. That sort of implies the weak ties have a lot more room to move to become a strong tie. So that could be like you've already maxed out the benefit from the strong ties, whereas the weak ties still have have much room to move in terms of you like getting to know who they are and what, what they can, you know, how they can help you and how you can help them and so on. So there's that kind of gap. Yeah, I, I think that that hits the mark. And, you know, it reminds me of a, a funny conversation I had with that, with one of my favorite people in the book, Adam Rifkin, uh, who, ooh, ooh, by uh, the way, Adam Rifkin's stories in the book were my favorite like that next to George Meyer Myers was was great. Yeah, Adam, Adam, to me, was just endlessly fascinating. Uh, so as you know, he's a serial entrepreneur whose first company was funded for $50 million. And he started two other companies and retired in his 30s and basically became a full-time giver, building a network of over 5,000 entrepreneurs and engineers to, to help them get their own companies off the ground. And when I asked Adam, he was named Fortune's Best Networker a couple of years ago because he had more powerful connections on LinkedIn than anyone on the planet, uh, including Michael Dell and... Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, I asked him how did he build his network, 
and uh, he, you know, he talked to me about the importance of kindness and helping others. And he said, but you got to know this difference between strong ties and weak ties. And I said, well, how does that play out for you? And he said, well, it, it doesn't. I'm actually too shy to reach out to my weak ties. <laughs> I'm like, well, why are you telling me this? He said, well, occasionally I will reach out to a weak tie when I'm desperate for help and they're you know, uniquely suited to help me. But then I feel really guilty and I want to be a giver. And so I try to help them and help other people in their network. And then we end up getting to know each other well. And at that point, I've accidentally turned them into strong ties, at which point, according to the research, they're useless to me. So I'm like, why are you telling me this? And he says, well, I found a way to get the best of both worlds. Some of the, the novel information that weak ties give you but also the trust, comfort, and familiarity of a strong tie. And I, I think that third kind of tie, to me, is the most interesting part of building your network as a giver. Well, you know, so, so related to this, like in your, in your action section, one of the things you suggest is if people need help, you, could may, you maybe have a weak tie out there that you could introduce them to. Like let's say I want a job at uh, Google and I reach out to my network of strong ties or weak ties and somebody has a weak tie to somebody at Google and they make the introduction. One area – and you show some successful examples of that. And one area where I have a problem with is – I don't like to introduce two people unless I ask both sides their permission first because I don't want to just outsource – You know, I don't want to think I've helped somebody, but I've just kind of outsourced their problem to somebody who barely knows both of us. You know? <laughs> yeah, then, and then, then you become a little bit of a Robin Hood giver, right, where you're, you're trying to help one person and you do it by taking from another. Right, exactly. And then I think – I feel like that devalues my network because then the person who was the weak tie wants a, a little more distance from me because I'm just going to keep throwing people at him. Yeah, I, I think increasingly I've, I've come to share your preference for the double opt-in introduction where when I'm going to connect two people, I reach out to both of them and, and get their permission first. I, I do have exceptions to that though. Um, one is when I have helped people in the past, one of the things I learned from Adam Rifkin actually was – he will, you know, he will pretty much do a five-minute favor for anyone. So you, know, you reach out to him, although the guy gets 800 emails a day, so he has a pretty heavy load. But if you, if you can get his attention, you know, he will help you with no strings attached. And then a couple months later, he will follow up and ask you for help. And you're like, wait a minute, like, is, is this guy really a, like a clever taker or a matcher, like masquerading as a giver and giving first? But then when he makes the request, he's asking you to help somebody else that he's trying to help. And the reason is he doesn't want to help people who are takers. And so after he helps you, he's going to ask you, one, to gauge whether you're willing to pay it forward. And two, to basically make sure that everybody he's helping is investing in building this network of givers. And so I've, I've been trying to do more of that since he explained that to me. And I, I had a chance to see it in action when, when stalking him around Silicon Valley for, for an evening. And it was really powerful. So I have tried now after I help somebody, you know, in the next few months to look for an opportunity to ask them to help somebody else to, to really create that investment in sort of a pay it forward network, which I think is immensely valuable for everyone involved. How do you do that? Like what's an example? Of that? So let's say you help a student get a job. Do you directly ask that student, hey, don't forget to now help somebody else? Yeah, I didn't used to, but now um, in my classes, for example, you know, we'll, we'll do an exercise where everybody asks for help and we all try to help them. And afterward, I'll say, look, you have carte blanche access. You can send any request you have to me and I will be willing to go to any former student in my network, provided that you're willing to, to basically make the same commitment. And so, yeah, like if somebody helps you get a job two years later, don't be surprised if I'm connecting you to a student who's looking for a job. Okay, I I could I could see that. So 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 that that's a little different than just kind of reaching out to you know introduce one weak tie to another and saying, hey, you two guys should meet, and suddenly you've like outsourced this massive problem to both sides. Yeah, in a way, and I think what's interesting though is you could, you could look at it that way, or you could say, no, actually, I'm helping them build a support network together. So I've been stunned by the number of former students who have reached out and said, you know, can we build some kind of alumni network or even have an alumni reunion? Because, you know, when, when you set this norm of giving and everybody is willing to help each other without any expectation of, of reciprocity, um, it, it just it changes the way that you can connect. And I think that, 
the the strength of community is there, the the willingness to ask. Um, it actually lowers the bar on you know is it okay to make yourself vulnerable? Well, um, if you know a bunch of people are givers, it's not so hard to ask. Well, I think I think there you know an alumni network is is something a little more powerful than let's say a universe of weak ties because let's say a universe of weak t- and it's directly related to let's say evolutionary psychology. So a universe of weak ties might be thousands like you might have thousands of weak ties but an alumni network is probably going to be measured in uh the dozens or maybe the small hundreds and those are people who and they all are revolving around a similar theme which is we've studied give and take from adam grant so so in that case you have the behavior of a tribe where it's more it's more expected that everybody plays their role of a giver in a tribe so that the tribe can survive yeah, and you know the funny thing is that Darwin even wrote about that. He said, "Look, you know, it, it seems like you know survival of the fittest." Although he never used that term, but it oh, seems like oh, I didn't like, know that. Yeah, it, it's one of those uh, one of those memes that got created later and then sort of back credited to Darwin. But you know, the, the, it seems like you ought to be just relentlessly self interested. And Darwin said, "But what you realize really quickly if you ever study tribes is that." A tribe of altruists will actually outsurvive a tribe of selfish people because every person in the tribe is committed to the group's survival. And that will ma- maximize the chances that the group actually is able to pass on its genes. Um, and I think that that's a, a pretty compelling case for the power of, of groups of givers. But we also have 30 years of evidence that if you get more of your employees or colleagues to, to think and act like givers – that those business units tend to be more profitable. They have higher customer satisfaction, also higher uh, employee retention. But, 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 okay, so looking at it from the Darwin perspective, a tribe sort of maxes out at 30 people, maybe, maybe a little bigger because people can, could develop the ability to gossip about other people in the tribe. So you can tell people who's good and who's not, even if they don't know them. But I think when it gets into the thousands, um, you need kind of a, a sort of compelling story to sit on top of, uh, the group to sort of bind them together to similar ideas. Yeah, I think I think that is a big challenge. Um, so you know, maybe maybe closer to your world. Um, I, I had a, a really interesting set of conversations with uh, with a leader at a hedge fund who, after reading Give and Take, decided that he wanted to build a stronger network of givers. And he picked the the three or four biggest givers he knew. He asked them each to invite the givers that they most admired and respected. And they started meeting once or twice a month, and then the group grew. And pretty soon, they started to find that the takers will, inf- will infer- excuse me, infiltrate that group. And that's where they needed either more matchers or more people to guard the, bo- the borders more carefully to say, look, you know, we, we've got to vet you first and make sure that you're motivated to give. But at some point, that, that just gets too big. And you need to then spin out a bunch of different tribes and maybe have somebody who's leading each one sort of interfacing to make sure that the, the tribes themselves are supporting and helping each other. Well, and, you know, you refer to there's one solution, which you refer to in the book, um, and I'll, I'll indirectly call it storytelling. But in your work on on call centers, it seems like you found that a call center would generally be um, filled with people who were kind of unhappy until – somebody came in and explained the deeper story of what was happening to the results of their calls. Like you use the, the case for people who were, who were calling um, to raise money for a college. When they brought in a student and explained, hey, your calls resulted in me uh, getting a scholarship so I can go to college, then the call center became five times more productive in terms of uh, raising money. And I, and I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I, I was I was actually pleasantly surprised that that worked because we had also had a manager talk about the why behind the work. You know, here here's where all the money goes, and it had no impact whatsoever. Um, I think the you know the callers were skeptical that the managers had an ulterior motive of trying to just convince them to work harder and make more calls. Right, because they, they thought the manager was a taker. Exactly. Whereas when the scholarship student comes in and says, "Look, I've always wanted to go to this university, and you know we couldn't afford the out of state tuition." Because of the money you raised, I was able to go to school here, and, and here's how it's changed my life. Um, you know, it's it's hard not to walk away from that with a with a deeper sense of the impact of your work, and you know, <laughs> especially in this line of work, right? You're you are doing a lot of asking and taking, right? Trying to get people to donate money, 
And it's really easy to feel devalued. There are a lot of, of alums, in this case of your university, who yell at you and reject you. And this is a reminder that there's somebody out there who values and appreciates your work. Well, and, and, and also, I, I, I'm going to make a huge stretch and compare this to Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. So obviously, he was in Auschwitz, and the way he described surviving was he, he tried to figure out meaning in his life, which is his meaning was his family, and he wanted to then write about his experiences. So he, he, he found enough meaning in his life to get through Auschwitz, but he would also try to uh, you know get, give meaning to the, the other people in Auschwitz, and many people killed themselves or would die or whatever, and he wanted less people to die. In this call center example, I'm gonna, it's obviously not Auschwitz, but in the call center example, uh, you're, the, the, the people doing the calling were given a, a greater sense or a deeper sense of meaning to what they do. They were, they were giving education to children. So that gave them the meaning to, to ask people. I, I think it's, it's impossible to overstate the importance of that message. Um, and the, the, the research that's gone on since Frankel wrote Man's Search for Meaning uh, has really backed it up that in the workplace, the single strongest predictor of having a sense of meaning is feeling that your job makes a difference in the lives of others. And you know the, the converse of that is the biggest signal that your job is meaningless is you feel like it doesn't make anybody else's life better. And there, there are all sorts of ways that we could do a better job designing work so that people feel that they have an impact. You know, and I know you've done some consulting for large organizations, and, and so have I. And one thing I tell particularly organizations that are consolidating, let's say, hundreds of offices all across the country, like maybe a company grew because they bought mom and pop shops, and now they're kind of consolidating them under one brand. The important thing is to give them a unified message about why this one brand now is going to, one brand together is going to help people more than all these separate brands, you know, off in far-flung places. And, you, and storytelling, again, becomes a way of giving people uh, meaning so they become givers. And I think that's important. Yeah, I do too. And so often, you know, if we, if we circle this back to the, the idea of, of asking, um, I, I had a, a conversation that, that really shifted my, my worldview. The, the story of this is uh, I had a, a former student uh, who was working in my research lab. And she came to me and said she thought the culture of my lab was really suffering. And I, I was a little bit mortified because I, I had been spending a huge amount of time trying to, to help everybody involved in as many ways as I could. And she said that there's such an imbalance that people feel really uncomfortable that you don't let anybody else give. Huh. And I, I, I've, I've since uh, had that conversation with a number of givers who are a little bit too selfless, um, not to suggest, by the way, that, that I was that way at all, but I just felt that the role was you know, I, I am here to help my current and former students. And I think I'd, I'd almost put up a wall saying like, there, there's no way that they can, you know, c c contribute to my world or even be part of my life. And I, I've since ended up telling a lot of givers, look, what I want you to do is, is sit down with, with somebody that, that you feel like there's this imbalance with and find out what they enjoy giving. Because if you are depriving them of the chance to be a giver, then that's kind of a sad thing. And oftentimes what happens is when, when you sit down with somebody and have that conversation and say, look, you know, when you think about the moments of helping other people that you've most enjoyed, they have these incredible stories where they just light up and you quickly realize that you've been missing out on opportunities to, to give them a chance to contribute. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also um – you know, you could view a network in two ways. One is a spoken wheel approach where you're kind of in the middle and you're giving to everybody along the rim of the wheel. Or you can view as a network as here are all my connections and the value of my network is not the connection, not the added up strengths of the connection between me and the other people, but the added up strengths between all the other people and each other. So then your, your network becomes exponentially more valuable if you increase the strengths of, of between two other people in your network with you not in the middle at all. Yeah, I think, I think that's so powerful. There was a, there was a study in an automotive company uh, by David Obsfeld who found that the, the more frequently you connected other people who could benefit from knowing each other, you know, and th this is this is not the kind of introduction where it's like, hey, James, I want you to help these 17 people who are now going to monopolize all your time. But rather, hey, you know, the two of you are, are sort of working on similar goals and I think you could support each other's efforts. The more often you made those kinds of connections and then got out of the way, 
the more likely you were to be a central player in innovation. Yeah, um, because I think that- you were just constantly connecting different people and ideas, and that allowed knowledge to flow. And and you know, those people usually wanted you involved in some capacity, whether you wanted to be in or not. I think that's so important because you know a typical reaction is, oh my god, I introduced these people, they made some money together, and I got nothing, or they did some, they created some value together, and I got nothing. And I think you have to just avoid that because you know success is measured in in decades ultimately, and not in in days or in interactions. And uh, you know, I, I think part of that is is the value you create by introducing people. So I wanted I wanted to kind of ask you a bunch of like random stuff from your book that I was just curious about. Um, you mentioned that the the three biggest and these, this has nothing to do with the rest of our conversation. It's just curious things that I read about in your book. So so you mentioned that the um, three most the three presidents that were the most givers were uh, let's say George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Millard Fillmore. And I never thought of Millard Fillmore as a giver. <laughs> <laughs> in, in fact, in fact, I, I interviewed somebody. The, the interview's not up yet. I interviewed Daniel O'Brien from Crack.com, who uh, wrote a book. Uh, I forget the exact title. It was something like uh, "How to Kick a President's Ass," and <laughs> and, and he just trashed Millard Fillmore. He was like, "This is the worst. This is the most innocuous, nothing president ever." So, what? Why did you include Millard Fillmore on that list? <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if only I could take responsibility for that choice. Uh, so this, this is a study where hundreds of historians, political scientists, and psychologists uh, who had expertise on the American presidency were asked to to rate the the presidents, uh, which ended up creating a rank order on you know how concerned they were about other people, how much they shared credit, did they act in the best interests of others, and you know th- these are obviously people who had primarily poured over their biographies. Um, I'm no expert on uh, on Millard Fillmore. I think there were probably a lot of ways in which uh, he was not a successful leader, but I do think he, you know, if, if you read about him, he was uh, he was frequently extolled for for being kind and generous, for being humble, and you know, I think a lot of that was uh, was probably with the the people he actually worked with. So you know, it's it's not necessarily the case that that he did you know a ton of good for the country. Looking back, but. You know, when you look at how he treated his staff, how he treated the citizens he interacted with, uh, he often went out of his way to to provide help and and show some compassion toward other people in need. And I think those are the kinds of signals that that probably jumped out. But uh, you'd probably, if you want to get a good answer to that, you'd probably have to ask uh, Rubenzer and Fashingbauer, the the psychologist who ended up writing the book about the research. Okay, that's it, fascinating. Um, okay, then another random question. Uh, I know you've done some consulting for Google. What did you do for Google? So um, Google is probably the the company that I've learned the most from in the past five years. Um, one of the the projects that we worked on was about basically helping managers provide more ways to give Googlers a meaningful job. So the the gist of this is, you know, the company obviously grew at a, a lightning speed, and it was very hard for people to come in at entry level positions. And feel like they were doing the the job that they wanted to do in the long run, um, and maybe even a year earlier that had been true for most hires. So what we did was uh, we designed a workshop. Uh, this is working with uh, two colleagues, Amy Resneski and Justin Berg, and uh, a couple of Googlers, Brian Welly and Jennifer Kirkowski. What we did was uh, we created a workshop where Googlers got to sit down and look at what are the the major building blocks of their job, and then. What are the ways that they would most like to adjust their job to make it more ideal but still realistic so that it would have a little bit more meaning so they could contribute more to others? And then they got to actually redesign what that job would look like. And then they were challenged to go out to their managers and their colleagues and, and try to make it a reality. And we found that, that just the, the, the chance to be sort of – I guess you know, this, is, this is a give from your managers, right? You're now given a chance to create a more meaningful job. A lot of the Googlers went out and did that, and we found that over the next six months, they had a sustainable boost in both happiness and job performance. Ah, oh, that's interesting. And do you still work with Google? Yeah. This, uh, so this exercise is called the Job Crafting Exercise, and uh, they've been rolling it out to various teams to, to help people basically navigate, how do I better align what I want to be doing with what I'm actually doing? And uh, we've, uh, we've been working on the implementation of that for a little while. Okay, and then another question I have, and again, unrelated to 
anything we've talked about. But you met, you had a, a interesting study where uh, companies where this so companies put out annual reports, and usually the CEO has a picture, and the picture is either big in the report or small in the report. And you found that the big pictures, like the CEOs will put big pictures of themselves, like Ken Lay in the Enron uh, annual report, tend to be takers. And the people who put small pictures of themselves tend to be uh, givers. Has there been any study where uh, uh, buying the stocks of givers outperform uh, buying the stocks of takers? Well, James, I'm secretly hoping that you're going to do that study. <laughs> um, here, here's what I'll tell you. So that, that Chatterjee and Hamrick study is, I, I think, pure genius because they not only you know, measured the size of the CEO's photos, but they got Wall Street analysts to rate the CEOs on a taking scale. How egotistical, selfish, and narcissistic are you? Um, and they found that the size of the photo was one of the best indicators of those ratings. Hmm. Um, I, I will say that you know the the companies that had narcissistic taker CEOs um, with the large photos did have more fluctuating returns, uh, so they were more volatile. Um, th- that's largely because the CEOs uh, who are takers tend to make big bets. They're really supremely overconfident in their own skills, and you know sometimes those bets pay off, but the rest of the times they sink the company. Um, there is evidence on the flip side. Suzanne Peterson and her colleagues have shown that um, if your CFO rates the CEO as a giver, the company actually has more sustainable long-term returns. And I think if you put those two studies together, I'd be willing to make a bet that in the long run, companies run by givers are more likely to yield sustainable positive returns. Uh, but I've not seen that exact study, and I would love to see it. You you should do it because then that's valuable to hedge funds. That's another service you could provide You know your hedge fund uh, consulting clients. Oh, and, until this knowledge gets out, right? And then uh, the market will just adapt accordingly. I don't know. You know, the market never adapts as fast as, as people think, you know, particularly on, on something like this, which is more like psychological as opposed to mathematical. But, uh, but it's interesting. But uh, Adam, what are you working on next? Oh, one of the big questions that's come out of give and take has been, you know, how, do I, how do I shift my culture? from, you know, one of taking toward giving or matching. Um, You know, I think a a lot of times that question comes from the top of organizations, but just as frequently from middle managers or entry-level employees, you know, what can I do to to make a dent? So I've been uh, doing a a bunch of research to try to figure out how do you screen out takers in the hiring process? And then what are the steps you can take after people have been hired to encourage people to act more like matchers and givers? And I think that's going to be a big focus over the next year or so. And then let's say let's say you someone reads your books and and say, or someone reads your book and says, "Huh, you know, I'm probably a taker." Uh, what can they do but they recognize the value of being a giver. What can they what steps can they take personally to become more of a giver? I think the biggest one is this idea that we've touched on uh, called the 5 minute favor. Um, so this this is Adam Rifkin's uh, term. He he basically says, "Look, you know, you want to be a giver, don't be Mother Teresa or Gandhi. Instead, Find more ways to do five-minute favors, which are basically just simple acts where you add high value to other people's lives at a low personal cost. Um, it's like micro-loaning your time, skills, and connections to other people. And I think we could all do a few more five-minute favors each week. Um, ideally, to go back to the point of specializing, you choose to do those in domains where you do have some unique expertise or you just really enjoy that kind of giving. Oh my God, I, I love that phrase, the five-minute favor. I think I'm going to have to steal that, actually. I'm going to have to take that. <laughs> and, and so and so so because it compounds. Like you do a five-minute favor and, and you do it every day, then suddenly you've, after, after a year, you've done five-minute favors for 365 people and they've gone on to report the results and, and have good results and so on. It, it's a great idea. So you do it in an area where you have expertise – among strong ties or weak ties? I, I usually think a mix of the two are good. So let me give you an example of this. So to go back to Adam Rifkin, about a dozen years ago, this is not in the book, uh, he decided that he was going to start making three introductions every day. Um, he just you know he loves, done, loves I, connecting people. I've actually just wrote about, not, not that I'm taking credit for anything, but I just wrote about the exact same thing. Send out three emails a day where you're trying to help people. It's, uh, I mean, I think it's such a good habit, right? And it, it really does bring the five-minute favor to life. So Adam, Adam does this, three introductions every day for 12 years. 
And, you know, that, that has been the, probably, if you ask him, the biggest way that he's contributed to other people's lives. He's, um, he's actually accidentally arranged at least four marriages okay. <laughs> when he's That's connected great. people that he thought would hit it off professionally. But, you know, dozens and dozens of companies have been founded because of the connections he's made. And he's able to make those introductions in the morning and then move on with his own work and, and balance helping with productivity, which I think is, is pretty exciting. That's that's really great. I love that. Um, so what's what's the best way for people to find you? Like, should they look at your, your videos? Should they read a blog? Obviously, they should read your book. I love Give and Take. And, you know, I'll tell you again, I was skeptical at first because – a, I'm not really much in favor of kind of at least right now the the college system, and that's essentially the the, the system you work in right now. Like I, I think uh, it's very hard for people to benefit from colleges given the high cost of tuitions now and the lack of jobs available. Um, and so you're you're coming out of that system. But I read the book and it impressed me so much. Uh, I really had to have you on. And also, maybe this is the, the subject. Maybe this is because of your the five-minute favors you do. So many people recommend it to me. You have to have Adam Grant on your podcast that I had to have you on. <laughs> well, James, I'm, I'm honored that you read the book. And uh, I've, I've been thoroughly intrigued and uh, also enlightened by the, the writing you've been doing. Um, Thank you. So I, uh, I, I very much appreciated your, uh, your enthusiasm. And I would say... I'm not going to assume that anyone should watch or read anything that I've created, but for folks who are interested, uh, probably the easiest thing to do is to go to giveandtake.com, where uh, I've posted uh, all the articles I've ever written, uh, which are available free. Uh, you can download the first chapter of Give and Take and read it free, and then there are a bunch of videos and, uh, and also some assessments where you can get other people to rate you uh, or fill out a survey to figure out whether you tend to be more of a giver, taker, or a matcher. All right, this is this has been so great, Adam. Thanks so much for for coming on the show, and I'm I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Adam. Bye. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes, the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.